Chapter 50 Daphne? The voice is far, far away like I've got my head underwater and someone above the surface is calling out to me, Daphne, are you okay? It looks like I'm deep underwater. The surface is up, up, up there. After I had been yeeted back to the ground, I had plunged into this vast abyss of water. Under my feet is nothing but darkness and more water, and up above is a canopy of light breaking through the surface in patches. It's not cold, just mildly unpleasant like I'm not supposed to be here. My legs gently kick back and forth, lightly treading water even though I don't seem to be going anywhere. My shoelaces, which had come undone in the scramble to get out of the car, weaved in and out of themselves like two dancing caterpillars on a leaf. My hair, which was wavy at best, billows around me, like I'm Udea, goddess of vitality, and not, and not, whoever I am normally. The darkness didn't seem scary. Admittedly, it seemed to be trying to be scary, but it was like a toddler trying to scare an adult. They tend to giggle too early on and give the game away because they have no experience in mischief. Well, they do, but not in getting away with said mischief. I know a pair of twins like that, don't I? Who? The water around me moves, a current twirling my hair around, reminding me that I'm underwater. It's weird. I don't feel wet or like I'm underwater, I can breathe perfectly fine. Actually, I don't seem to need to breathe at all. I do now that I think about it, but I don't think I was breathing before I thought about it. Daphne? There's something there, just above the surface. It's the one that's calling out for Daphne. Which is me. I'm Daphne. And with that, my head bobbed up to the surface, rupturing my vision of the dark abyss and the canopy of light. Daphne, are you there? A hand whipped past my eyes a few times, anyone home? The blanket is at my feet, still waiting for me in a crumpled pile in the same place that I had dropped it when I, when I. What happened? Daphne? Velma asks again, hello? Blinking a few times, I realize that both she and the mechanic are staring at me. The mechanic has a phone in her hand, the dial pad open and ready. Do you, do you want me to call someone? The mechanic asks, holding up her phone, your car is fine, but if you need me to dash? No, no, it's fine, Velma says. Her eyes glued to me as she waves away the mechanic, I'll deal with this. Velma picks up the blanket from the floor and wraps it around my shoulders, you must be cold, here. Velma, I had the weirdest dream, I grabbed her arms to get her to pay attention to what I'm saying rather than my immediate physical needs, I flew into the sky, and there was this place in the clouds, the clouds, Velma. Yeah, maybe don't say that so loudly, Velma plucks my hands off her arms, takes my elbow, 
and leads me away from the car and out of earshot of the mechanic. The mechanic is on the verge of calling Crystal Cove's lunatic asylum as it is. But the asylum closed decades ago, I say, still slightly dazed from, whatever just happened, we explored it once because we thought it was cursed, remember? It was actually just Dash. A publicity stunt for the museum they were building there, I know. It was supposed to be a joke, Velma stares at me, Daphne are you okay? You just stared at that for, like, ten minutes. She gestures to the line of forests along the highway. I can't shake the feeling that something, something, is out there, watching us. I step forward, trying to catch a glimpse of it as Velma watches on with a mix of worry and confusion. Look, Daphne, I'm sorry, Velma professes, I know coming back here was hard for you, and I haven't exactly made it easier. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to dredge up the past, it's just Dash. Something crunches underneath my foot. A feather, bright white like a bolt of lightning. It gleams like the moon in a cloudless sky even under the shadow of the trees. Picking it up, I watch in wonder as the mud from my shoes crumbles away from the feather, allowing for the pristine shimmer to emanate from it even more than it just had. Twisting it between my fingers, I let the feather catch the orange light of the overhead street lamps, birds that look like stars. Right, Velma is still staring at me, this time with a mix of disbelief and maybe hope. I'm going to go deal with the mechanic, could you? We'll talk about this later. With a final nod, Velma turns on her heel and walks towards the mechanic. Their voices, the mechanic's filled with agitation and Velma's filled with the calmness of a therapist, make their way to me, the actual words lost to the night. Who are you? I whisper to the forest, not expecting a reply or anything of note at all. I just wanted to let the thought out before my head exploded out of curiosity. Soft as a breeze, quiet enough for me to dismiss as simply the trees rustling, I hear, a friend. A hand lands on my shoulder, startling me and causing me to jump. Sorry, I didn't mean to. Velma glances over my shoulder at something, her eyes filling with fear, but there's nothing when I whip my head around to look at it. What did you just see? I almost shouted at her, what was it? Who was it? She slips one of her shaking hands into mine, forcefully pulling me away from the trees, come on, we should go. Daphne, I managed through gasps of air after slamming the door open with my best acting skills, thank God I found you, we need to talk. Now. Velma. Daphne exclaimed, letting the papers fall through her fingers, are you all right? What happened to you? Mrs. Robertson, equally startled, surveyed me for visible injuries, while another student briefly glanced up from their book to look at me. I just ran down the corridor, I explained, dramatically trying to catch my breath, 
I really need to work on my fitness, the club room is literally like two corridors away. Daphne did that half-tilted nod as she helped me into a seat, what's this emergency? Mrs. Robertson seemed to determine that I was fine and so excused herself to get me a glass of water. I glared at the student, an anxious freshman, and said with as much power I could muster, keep her distracted for as long as you can. The student, surprisingly resistant given the situation, remained in their seat but did at least place the book in their backpack. Please? Daphne added with a smile. Somehow, that was enough, and the student disappeared after Mrs. Robertson. What's the rush? Daphne asked jokingly, it's not like you have a deadline on solving the mystery. I know, right? I commented sarcastically, something compelled me to run as if an omniscient overlord was controlling my every action and chronicling them in a piece of fiction. That's ridiculous, Daphne replied, stroking my arm slightly, you still haven't told me why you're really here yet. I figured out who our mysterious woman was, I told her, it was Elliot Murray, the one we dismissed because you thought she was a he. Oh. Daphne jumped up, Murray, like Eric Murray? Exactly, I gesture to the pile of newspapers and clutter around the office, somewhere in here, I'm guessing, is the key to this mystery. I explained to her what we were looking for as quickly as I could while Mrs. Robertson was still out of the room. While we still had the chance, we rummaged through the drawers of the tiny desk in the corner for leverage or clues we could use to extract the truth. There wasn't much, to be perfectly honest, just the usual paperwork that comes with being a school librarian, literature orders and receipts, notes from teachers about students to keep an eye for, late notices, cards from students, that kind of thing. Ah, look at this, Daphne said, holding up a hand-drawn Christmas card, it's so sweet, see? It's from Jennifer, saying thank you for recommending Roald Dahl. That's cute, I replied, it looks really old, where's it from? Christmas of 1988, I think? Daphne wonders out loud, and this says she's a freshman, so 14 or 15. She is 21 now. Who, old enough to drink, do you think she'd buy us alcohol if we ask nicely? I joked, maybe if we tell her we're friends with Mrs. Robertson, she might. They seem pretty close, don't they? Daphne smiled, turning the card over in her hands. Why else would you keep a card from nearly ten years ago? Maybe Mrs. Robertson is a bit of a hoarder, I shrugged, going through more of the papers. This one is one of the teacher notices. I've seen this trio mentioned a couple of times now. Dennis Butler, Nathan Myers, and Peter Roberts. They were quite the troublesome trio. The notice mentions how they'd set of four stink bombs in a week and terrorized a group of fellow freshmen back in 1986. I mean, why on earth would she need notices from nine years ago? 
I continued, these kids are long gone. It's weird, though, Daphne noted, Mrs. Robertson only has cards from Jennifer, a couple from others around the same time, and the ones from this year. Nothing in between. Maybe she forgot to throw them out during spring cleaning or something, I dismissed, we're not looking for Christmas cards anyway, stay focused. No, wait, Daphne froze, they're coming back, quick, put everything back. In the hurried scramble to put everything back, Daphne pressed a newspaper clipping into my hand, I found it. Mrs. Robertson re-entered the room, slightly harried from the freshman's attempts at delaying her return. She handed me the glass of water and settled into the chair opposite me. Am I allowed to know of this emergency, or is this a secret mystery club matter? Mrs. Robertson asked with a smile, or is this fresh, new gossip? You girls know how much I love chitter-chatter. Actually, I took a sip of the water, I wanted to pick your brains a little, Mrs. Robertson. You did, she asked, what about exactly? You see, Mrs. Robertson, Daphne explained, we've been researching Schmidt, the groundskeeper. You'll not find much, dearies, Mrs. Robertson laughed, old Schmidt lives a routine, drab life. You know, he didn't even go to the faculty Christmas feast even after being explicitly invited by the headteacher. We were looking into his past, I continued, did you know he had a wife? And a son? There was something there, a momentary look that passed across Mrs. Robertson's face at the mention of Eric. Pain, guilt, grief, maybe? It was gone in a flash and replaced with ignorance. No, I don't recall, Mrs. Robertson replied, he's always been alone as far as I can remember. Well then, I pulled out the newspaper clipping Daphne had given me and placed it on the desk, why do we have a photo of you attending Eric's funeral? The article is a tribute to Eric, dated a week and a half after his death, and has a photo of the funeral party watching the casket under the title. Mrs. Robertson covered her face with her hands, mirroring her newspaper image, and pushed the article away from her. Front row seats to watch the casket being lowered into the ground no less, Daphne pointed out, you have to be pretty important to receive that honor. Are you sure you've never heard of him before? Aye, aye. Mrs. Robertson stammered, her grief racking her frame as the sobs escaped her lips, I would have done anything for him to be happy, you know? Daphne pursed her lips and gently rubbed Mrs. Robertson's back, take your time. Thank you, Mrs. Robertson tried her best to collect herself and in between sobs, told us the plight of Eric Murray. He'd been born Jennifer Murray, Mrs. Robertson told us, in 1974 to Carl and Elliot Murray. They were a fairly normal family, to all extents. Carl and Elliot weren't exactly delighted about their marriage, however, but as Elliot had already been pregnant with Eric at the time, 
they didn't really have much choice. It was either a life of exile and scandal. Crystal Cove was an even smaller and more conservative town back then, or getting married. Obviously, Elliot found someone else who she was much more compatible with, so she ended up abandoning Eric and Carl for Christian Hill, a wealthy real estate mogul from out of town. Eric was five at the time, so understandably this weighed on him heavily. It only got worse for him as he started school and immediately became the target of bullies. This bullying continued throughout elementary and middle school, as both schools were in the same building, but Eric did get a year of respite as the bullies happened to be in the year above. Would they have by any chance been Dennis Butler, Nathan Myers, and Peter Roberts? I asked. Yes, how did you know that? Mrs. Robertson replied, perplexed by my interruption. Just a hunch, I shrugged, please, go on. It was during that year that Eric realized that maybe he wasn't a girl, like everyone in his life had told him up to that point. Naturally, when he moved up into high school, the bullies noticed this doubt and tormented him to hell and back about it. It had started small, knocking books out of arms, that kind of thing, but as with most things, it escalated. Dion, that's what everyone called Dennis, nearly drowned Eric in the girls' bathroom. Peter tried to push Eric down a flight of stairs, but somehow managed to do it in the wrong direction. And Nathan. He made it look like a suicide, didn't he? Daphne asked offering Mrs. Robertson a handkerchief, he went too far and instead of getting help, he staged it to rid himself of the blame. Eric used to come in here all of the time with bruises and cuts, Mrs. Robertson said, nodding, every time, he would say that everything was fine, and even as the injuries got worse, I believed him. I thought he had it under control, little did I know that. She sobbed, pulling her cardigan around her tighter. He was such a sweet kid. I promised myself never to let such a thing happen again, never to let a student down. Mrs. Robertson took one of Daphne's and one of my hands and grasped them together every time I think about how he must have died, all alone in that special ed building, my heart breaks. Schmidt visits it every Tuesday, I told her, he died on a Tuesday, didn't he? Mrs. Robertson nodded, he's still trying to prove that the boys killed him, even after all of these years. He borrows those newspapers all the time. What do you mean? Prove it? Daphne asked, the police caught them, didn't they? No, I'm afraid not, Petal, Mrs. Robertson seemed to be on the verge of tears again, the police don't care, frankly. Because Eric was transgender, they thought his death was good riddance. That's awful, Daphne glanced at me, we've got to do something about this. Chapter 51 The car ride back to Crystal Cove is an awkward one. We had left the highway at this point and were now traveling down the mountain road.
We were maybe half an hour away from Crystal Cove still, so I kept switching between watching the minutes tick down and staring out of the window. The radio is off, further highlighting the silence between us. Streetlight after streetlight flies past. Thanks to the fog that had settled while we were waiting for the mechanic to arrive, I could no longer see the lampposts, so each streetlight looked like an orange static UFO in the distance, waiting to abduct me back to the land in the cloud. The, the orange light from above passes through the car like a patch of sunlight through a field, illuminating the contents of the car. In the back seat are two gift bags, still unopened, and some of the Tupperware and plates Velma had used to bring the food to the party. Apparently, Fred would drop off the rest when they come to visit. In the center console, a receipt from the mechanic and a set of keys sits waiting to be taken inside and dumped on the counter. Slightly hungry from the long drive, I pop open one of the gift bags and root around for any snacks. The cake would be too messy as it is almost impossible to cause some crummage, and I don't want to make a mess in someone else's car, but thankfully there is some loose candy rolling around at the bottom of the bag. I take one out, it's a butter toffee. I offer one to Velma, who takes one with a quiet thanks. We sit in silence, slowly eating our toffees as the car continues to make its way towards home. No, just Crystal Cove, I remind myself, Crystal Cove is not your home. My mind wanders back to the cloudland I had been temporarily transported to. It had the exact same energy or vibe as the meadow, a fingerprint of sorts and somehow I knew that the same entity was behind both occurrences. Velma must be hiding something, I know she saw the dog's collar change, that much was evident on her face. It said Maddie at first. Had she seen the meadow, though? Maybe I was just hallucinating? I shook my head to clear it like an etch-a-sketch. No, that can't be. Where else could I have gotten the stone I left on Alexei's windowsill? It's far too heavy to have just been blown into my pocket by the wind, unlike a bag of cocaine, so it wasn't that. Maybe someone put the rock in my pocket? But why would they do that? Who would do that? The fucking, I don't know, rock bandit? A bandit who commits absurd acts of chaos that seeps confusion into the everyday lives of Crystal Cove citizens? That sounds like a good children's book, actually, I thought to myself, I should talk to Mike about it. But anyway, maybe Christy, if she wanted to mess with me, but she doesn't know about Maddie, or the rocks. She was nowhere to be seen either, so that's unlikely. I suppose Velma could have, she knew the link between Maddie and those rocks, but why would she? And how could she have done it anyway? There's no way she could have made a dog run towards us, cause me to have a hallucination and put a rock inside my zipped up pocket. Something happened, I simply don't know what exactly. I'm not crazy, you know, 
I say quietly, more to myself, really, I saw what I saw. I know, Velma replies, quickly shifting her gaze from the road to me to back to the road again, I've seen some of the same things. Wait, really? I have to brace myself a little, surprised that she was so willing to tell me about it given her past reactions. I check the ingredients list for the toffee for three quinucleidinyl benzolate while I ask, you saw the cloudland? And the meadow? Not the cloudland, but the meadow, yes, she sighs, I'm so glad I'm not, that you see it too. I can't see her whole face, but I know Velma is only just holding herself together. I saw this face often in our senior year, in glimpses in the corridors, flashes in the reflection of mirrors, glimmers in the car park. Always in the distance, though. Younger Velma never wanted to open up or talk about her feelings. Said they were weak, even though they were clearly killing her slowly from the inside. She had pulled away back then, and there was no way I was going to let that happen again. I gently place my hand on top of her hand on the gear shift, do you want to talk about it? If not, I can try to find a distraction. Velma nods, pea puppies are cute, aren't they? I dash, yeah, they are. Cheese's puppies are especially adorable. If I could, I would adopt one immediately. Yeah, I'm thinking of maybe adopting one, actually, Velma confesses, would it be cruel? You know, my apartment is pretty small and the only green space I have is the tiny garden out back. I don't know, I pull out my phone, I'll look it up, but I think if you give them plenty of walks in the park or something it should be fine. While we continued to talk about puppies, something my therapist had said repeated itself in my head. To recover from something in the long term, you have to sit in the shit. If you keep distracting yourself from it, it'll only become a bigger problem. I suppose that, even if I can't fix Velma in the long run, I can still provide some temporary relief, right? I just hope I don't make it worse in the long run. Eventually, the conversation peters out, leaving us in a comfortable silence again, so I decided to pull out my laptop and finish some of the work I promised myself I would do. I might not get Wi-Fi out here but that doesn't mean I can't whip up an article I already have the notes for. I'm trying my best, but the long day, the drowsy atmosphere, and Velma sitting next to me in silence were making working difficult. I don't think she's even realized that I'm working, though, as her eyes have been glued to the road since the discussion about puppies, but I know that it's only inevitable, as was going to stop me. As if on cue, Velma glances over and notices me on my laptop, Hey! What are you doing? Working, I shrug, I figured I might as well get a head start on the work I need to do tonight. You shouldn't be working on your vacation, Velma flails her arm, trying to shut the laptop while keeping an eye on the road ahead, aren't you supposed to be relaxing? 
It's not like you have a lot of time here. Well, the next round of layoffs are imminent, and if working while relaxing means I can keep my job, I'll take that temporary pain, I tell her, moving my laptop out of her grasp, anyway, I'm almost done, I just can't figure out the wording for this last paragraph. Tell me what it's about, Velma commands, maybe I can help. Excuse me? You heard me, Velma gestures to the laptop, read to me, word wizard. It's not that good, it's just an info piece, something for people with limited knowledge of technology dash. I don't know anything about technology, Velma smiles at me, read the article to me. Fine, I give in, it's about cookies, like the ones on your computer, or your browser, actually, not the ones you bake. Are you sure you can do this? I asked for the umpteenth time, maybe we should wait another day, prepare a little more, just in case? There's only so much preparing you can do, my lovely buddy, Daphne replied, squeezing my hand, wish me luck. Good luck, I smiled at her, please don't die. I'll try not to. Shaggy, Scooby, and I watched from the van as Fred and Daphne approached the house. We had been meticulously planning this for weeks now. Daphne had suggested that we start small, interrogate the person with the least involvement, then move up from there, both for safety reasons and also to make sure we have enough practice to take on the final boss. We were outside Peter Roberts' house, listening and watching through the hidden cameras and microphones we'd planted on our pair of interrogators thanks to Mrs. Robertson's support, we had managed to expand our club budget enough to afford new equipment. A woman in her early to mid-fifties with shoulder-length, dark, curly hair answers the door, initially suspicious of Daphne and Fred, if you're selling, I don't want anything. No, miss, we're not, Daphne reassured her in her best grown-up voice, we're actually here to talk to Peter. What do you want with him, the woman's eyes narrowed, Peter doesn't have many friends, and I know you're not one of them. Loser, shaggy jokes, imagine not having friends, eh, Scooby? I elbowed him in the ribs playfully and shushed him, I'm trying to listen. An article on alumni from our school, and one of our teachers mentioned that Peter was an avid member of the Eco Council, Daphne explained, so, we thought it would be interesting to see if writing an article on him could revitalize the school's pro-environment campaign. Only if Peter wants to, of course, Fred beamed. The woman seemed to transform from a tired mother into a high-spirited college student in the blink of an eye. She opened the door wider, come in, come in. I'm Summer, by the way, and you are? Didash, Daphne started. Da, tty. Fred interjects, she's Dady, I'm Franklin. Dady? That's an odd name. Summer commented, is that one of those, exotic names? Ha, yes, I know, everyone thinks it's such a stupid name, 
Daphne stared daggers into Fred as she said this, my parents named me Dorothy, but my sister couldn't say it properly when she was little, so she called me Dady instead. I guess it just kind of stuck. Well, it's lovely to meet the two of you, Franklin Anne. Dady, Summer said, pausing slightly at Daphne's fake name, would you like anything to drink, Dady, Franklin? I've got juice, milk, water, and coffee. Peter is out on a run at the moment, so he might be gone for a while. Could I have a glass of water, please? Daphne asked, a fake smile adorning her face, I'm parched. Sure thing, Keto. As soon as summer disappears, the pair descend into a hissed argument. What the hell kind of name is Dady, you dumbass? Daphne accusingly jabs her finger into Fred's shoulder, was that all you could come up with? Hey. Be grateful. I stopped you from using your real name, remember?" Fred smugly replied, staring into one of the hidden cameras, really, you should be thanking me, isn't that right guys? Neither Shaggy nor I got a chance to reply as Daphne immediately responded with, I was gonna say, Dahlia, you dipshit. Your interruption made it a whole lot worse, and if it weren't for my quick thinking, we would be in a whole lot of trouble. Oh. Oh is correct, Daphne glared at him, a sorry would be nice, too. Don't push your luck. Guys, I said into the microphone attached to the computer, you need to focus up here, we don't have a lot of time to snoop around, so make the most of what time you do have. Right, right, Fred said dismissively, what are we looking for again? Did you not listen to me on the way here? I chided him, I could have sworn I reminded you over and over so you wouldn't forget. Well, I was a little, dash Fred glanced at one of the hidden cameras, distracted. Just tell me again. Okay, you need to find blackmail material, basically, Shaggy cut in, you know, like childhood photos, evidence of secrets, that kind of thing. Shaggy had paused slightly before uttering the word secret, glancing at me abashedly. Smiling, I mind zipping my mouth shut and throwing away the key. We need to find out some information about Peter that we couldn't get from school, I explained over the microphone, anything we can use against Peter or lead us to new evidence to use against the others. Our detective pair managed to find several things, including, but not limited to, bills that showed that Summer was in a large amount of debt and doesn't work, documents that showed that Peter had recently dropped out of his architecture course due to allegations of assault against fellow classmates, and his high school yearbook from the year Eric had been killed. Daphne was flicking through it when Summer returned with a tray of drinks and snacks, I thought you kids might be peckish, so I have treats if you want it. Thank you. Daphne took a small sip of water. Fred nibbled cautiously at one of the cookies. I remember this, Summer said, picking up the yearbook Daphne had hastily discarded onto the coffee table, 
It's from Peter's last year at high school, his last good year, really. What do you mean? Fred inquired. Oh, nothing you need to worry about, dear, Summer replies dismissively. Glancing at the time, I elbowed Shaggy, we've got five minutes until Peter is due back from his run, can you keep a lookout just in case? Nodding, Shaggy got out of the van and pretended to be going on a dog walk with Scooby. Meanwhile, I leaned into the microphone and warned the pair of their time limit. Would we be able to borrow this? Daphne asked, holding up the yearbook, most of our questions were just going to be about who else was on the eco-council, but using this, we could get all of the information we need without having to take up more of your time. Yes, that's fine, Summer replied. Are you sure you don't want to stay for a few more minutes? Peter should be back soon. Oh, we need to get back to school, Franklin here got detention for skipping class, Daphne lied, apparently picking up litter isn't a valid excuse. Climate change deniers, eh? Fred grinned, baring his teeth at Daphne, they never seemed to understand. In the van's side mirror, I can see Shaggy and Scooby running as fast as they could towards the van, which could only mean one thing. Peter was almost home. Guys. Hurry up, he's almost there, you need to get out of there now. I nearly screamed into the microphone as Shaggy and Scooby scrambled into the back van with me, knocking over one of the monitors in the process. Mmm, don't worry, kid, they were exactly the same as me. Summer placed her hands on Fred's shoulders, one day. We will be proven right, and guess who'll look like a fool then? Them, Daphne smiled, we really need to get going now, though, so. Yes, yes. Summer released Fred, let me show you to the door. They just about managed to get into the van in time, as Peter was rounding the corner just as Fred slammed his foot down on the accelerator to get us out of there. With a sigh of relief, I hugged Daphne close enough to hear her racing heartbeat. For good measure, I punched Fred's arm for nearly blowing both of their covers. Chapter 52 Do you want to stop by somewhere for food? Velma asks, burying the toffee wrapper in the cup holder between us, candy is good and all, but it isn't exactly filling. Will anywhere even be open around now? I pull out my phone, glancing at the time, we've already passed the garden center, so that's out. That was less than ten minutes ago, we could always turn back, Velma suggests. On the mountain road? I question, that's out of the question, even if it wasn't against the law, it's dangerous, and I think we've already challenged this car enough. Maybe there's like a Denny's or an IHOP nearby, Velma peers into the darkness as if a restaurants were going to materialize out of the mountain. Maybe. I open up Google Maps and search for nearby restaurants. After a moment of the spinning loading symbol that seemed to take forever, 
A list comes up, MMM, no luck, there's nothing nearby, apparently. Well, there's a diner, but we'd have to take a major detour. You sure? Velma queries, a dance playing on her lips, there's absolutely no place nearby? The closest ones are in Crystal Cove, or back in Treadway, I inform her, obviously, we're on the mountain road, of course, there's nothing here. Why do you ask, anyway? Are you 100% sure, Daph? Velma teases, like, no doubt, absolutely no places to eat nearby? Mm hmm? Then how do you explain this? Velma dramatically gestures forward, and then I saw it. It's in the middle of a lumber yard, as though placed there by a higher power, or a toddler slapping a sticker onto a mismatching book. A mystical, whimsical building with colorful stained glass windows on the spiral tower sticking out of the top. It looks like a witch's cottage, and it couldn't be more out of place. The scent of coffee and sugar and cream wafted out of the place like tentacles, trying to lure us inside. Most importantly, though, is the fluorescent light sign in one of the display windows, open. Do you want to go inside? Velma asks, if it's not on your list, it might not be an official establishment. Maybe they're a new small business, I shrug, these things can take time. Maybe. Velma seems slightly nervous. She keeps glancing at the building, worry etched into her face. I take one of her hands and squeeze it three times. Hey, the worst that can happen is that we leave here hungrier than we started. We don't have to go in if you don't want to. She pauses slightly, then squeezes my hand back, only once though. Small businesses are the backbone of our economy, so we should support them. There is no ethical consumption under capitalism. I jokingly sing in response as we get out of the car. We are not starting this debate again, Velma mimics zipping the air between us, but I'm right. Sure, you can tell yourself that. A small bell dings as we open the door announcing our entrance to the smiling employee behind the counter. She greets us cheerfully, picks up two menus from the counter and shows us to our table. It's the best one in the entire building, the one by the stained glass windows of the spire. I imagine it would be beautiful in the daytime, the colorful lights dancing across the table and filling the building with a warm glow. The building is larger than it looks from the outside. Several chalkboards line the far wall, displaying various select menus, bagels, drinks, soups, sandwiches, paninis, all manner of things. Trinkets and glass ornaments hang from the high ceiling, creating a tinkling sound as the gentle breeze causes them to swing into each other. I can't tell how high the ceiling is, just that it is high, thanks to the canopy of draping fabric. There must be a second floor to this place, probably living quarters, but there aren't any stairs or ladders to be seen. 
This whole place seems normal until you look harder or think a little longer or question a little more. Then, and only then, does this place reveal its magic? So, the woman says with a smile, what can I get you to? Erm, yes, I take the lead this time, can we get a black coffee and a... You're not having black coffee, Daph, Velma raises an eyebrow, daring me to challenge her, what would you recommend for us? Oh, well, the woman steps back to get a better look at us, for you, Daphne, I would recommend a hearty tomato soup. You need to warm up a little bit, and the extra sugar can only do good on someone as skinny as you. How do you know my name? My face seems to be stuck in a look of perplexion and suspicion. Lucky guess based on your girlfriend's nickname for you, the woman smiles again. She's not Dash, we're not, no, I stammer as Velma shoots worried looks at me. You're rather perceptive, aren't you? Velma asks, trying to lighten the mood a little, what would you recommend for me then? Well, Velma. The woman must have seen the concerned look Velma gave me, as she quickly added, oh, don't worry babes, you've still got a name sticker stuck to your shirt. Was the birthday party fun? Yes, it was actually, Velma replies, self-consciously tugging at her jacket to cover the sticker, my goddaughter, she's turning seven. Well, for you, I'd recommend a mocha, and maybe a Humboldt sandwich, the lady taps her chin as she says this, tough times are ahead, you're going to need the extra energy. Haha, <laughs> Velma laughs awkwardly, we'll have that then, thank you. Of course, the woman smiles once more, is there anything else you two will need? The cafe is empty, as you can see, so I'm happy to help in any way I can. No, we should be alright, I glance at Velma for confirmation, quick question, actually, what is this place called? There was nothing on Google Maps about this, so. Oh, I don't believe in any of that technology nonsense, the lady laughs, this establishment is called Café Hirath if you must know. Feel free to tell all of your friends about us. We will, thank you, Velma smiles at the woman. Just remember, the café tends to move about, so don't expect it to be here tomorrow the woman says mystically. Without another word, she disappears into another room, presumably to go make our food. What was that all about? Velma hisses at me. She was probably just palming off her leftovers onto us, don't overthink her recommendations for us, I say absent-mindedly as I follow the instructions on my phone to add a missing place to Google Maps. No, I don't mean that, Velma waves a hand between me and my phone, the whole thing about not being in the same tomorrow. She probably just meant the menu, Velma, I reply, trying to rationalize it in my own head as I say so, maybe she changes it about often. Plus, she's running a cafe in the middle of nowhere, I doubt that she's fully sane. Maybe, Velma replies, only half believing it. 
Velma. Maddie called from downstairs, your friend is here. If it's Fred, dash, I called back, you can tell him I'm not doing his physics homework for him. It's not Fred, Daphne said, walking through my open bedroom door, she teased, did you want it to be? Why, Daphne? Why on earth would I want that prick in my house? I rolled my eyes and tidied away some of the papers on my desk, anyway, can I help you with something? If it's about the chemistry project, I thought we agreed that Tuesdays work best, not Thursdays. Nope. Daphne rooted around her bag for a moment, pulling out the yearbook we had borrowed from the Roberts. I was taking a look inside yesterday because something felt off when we looked at it together, but I couldn't put my finger on it. Now I can. Peter isn't in any of the Eco Council's photos. So? Maybe he's photo shy, I replied, with that face, I would be. The thing is, Velma, he's not on the club list either, Daphne continued, I cross-referenced it with the school's records dash. You broke in again? I asked exasperatedly, didn't the head threaten you with expulsion if you did it a fifth time? Only internal exclusion, so it doesn't matter, Daphne dismissed, but yeah, Peter wasn't in the eco-council. Never was. He lied to his mother, so what? No, Velma, think about it. There's no way Summer, a woman who spent most of her twenties advocating for the environment, isn't going to proudly show off her only son's contributions to every person she knows, Daphne explained, she lied to us. Why would she do that? I asked, she thought we were writers from the school newspaper, why wouldn't she just say her son wasn't in the eco-council? It's weird to lie about it now, after all of these years. Because it gives him an alibi for Eric's murder, Daphne stated matter-of-factly, Eric died during lunch hour on a Wednesday when the eco-council used to hold meetings. But it wasn't Summer who originally told us about Peter being in the eco-council, that was. I trailed off, the realization dawning on me. Coach Orozco, Daphne said, filling in the gaps for me. He two-timed us? I think so, Daphne leaned forwards, but there's something I need to do for me. Daphne, I'm not the best person to go confront him, you know I'm bad at talking to people dash, I started before Daphne waved away my concerns. No, no, nothing like that, Daphne smiled reassuringly. I just need you to hack into the local bank's database and find out his recent transactions. Daphne. I yelped, that's that's illegal. And an invasion of privacy. I know, but I need we need to find out if this guy is trustworthy, Daphne placed her hand on top of mine, please. You're the only person I can trust to do this. Shaggy and Scooby aren't exactly competent when it comes to computers, and Fred. Fred would get into massive trouble with his dad, I know, I sighed, what do you need me to find out? 
Thank you, thank you, thank you. Daphne hugged me, okay so basically, we know the Roberts are in huge amounts of debt, yet they can afford a fairly nice house despite neither Summer nor Peter being employed. Yeah, we figured it was because they had bought the house before accruing that much debt and that they were living off of Peter's dad's child support payments. But Peter isn't in full-time education anymore, remember? Daphne pulled out a piece of paper with part of California's legislation printed out onto it, he graduated from high school four years ago, and he dropped out of college in his first year. According to Family Code, Division 9, Part 1, Chapter 3, Article 2, there is no statute or case law holding parents to a duty to college support in the absence of an agreement. Maybe they reached an agreement, I shrugged, what are you trying to say? I tracked down Peter's father, Daphne said, he's a gambling addict. He's the one that got them into so much debt in the first place there is no way he's paying child support. How can you be sure? Maybe he got his life turned around. He's dead, Velma, Daphne stated, it's not possible. Oh, I cleared my throat awkwardly, well, then I'll get right on that dash. Velma. Maddie called from downstairs, interrupting our conversation, when's dinner? Mostly so that I wouldn't have to shout so much, I headed downstairs with Daphne to check on Maddie. She had been doing her homework on the dining room table, as had become her custom despite the desk in her room, but now she was standing in the doorway of the kitchen waiting for me. Can't you just make yourself a sandwich or something? I asked her, checking the fridge to see what we have. Your mom said I'm not allowed in the kitchen unless someone is supervising me, Maddie repeated mom's words, even imitating her a little. Why's that, Maddie? Daphne stooped to look her in the eye, did she not like your cooking? No, she burned her hand last week making pasta, I told her, you can come into the kitchen, but don't touch anything hot. I'm not a baby. Maddie protested, stepping inside the threshold, and anyway, if your mom hadn't startled me when I was pouring pasta through the coriander, it would have been fine. Cullender, and no, it wouldn't have been, I said as I made her sit on one of the bar stools to keep her out of harm's way, you shouldn't have been messing about in the kitchen. Well, I was hungry, and you were still in the library, like always, Maddie snapped back. I just wanted to help. That's okay, Keto, Daphne took a seat next to her, we know you meant well, but you're still a kid so we need to take care of you, okay? You don't have to be a grown-up anymore. Fine, Maddie agreed reluctantly. Her pout was replaced by a timid smile, though. Maybe she was thawing a little after all.